APL, it was number one was feature functionality. Number two was perf. Whereas Q and K, it's number one is performance. Number two is feature functionality, which I think is... No, number two is still perf. <laughs> no, number two is still perf. <laughs> Maybe number three. Okay, number four is feature functionality. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor. And today with us, we have a very special guest, a follow-up guest to the individual we had last week, who I'm super excited to talk about. But before we get to introducing him, we are going to go around and do brief introductions and then a couple announcements. So we'll start with Bob, then go to Steven, then to Adam, and then to Marshall. I'm Bob Terrio, and I'm a J-enthusiast. I am a J-enthusiast. I'm not just skipping words. This is me, Steven. I'm a Q and APL programmer. Adam here. I do APL. Uh, Marshall Lockbaum. I did J once. I worked at Dialog, and now I am developing BQN. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. I'm a polyglot programmer with a huge passion for array languages. And I think we've got three announcements. So we'll go to Adam first, uh, then Stephen, and then Bob. Right. Uh, the announcement I have is that uh, APL Seeds uh, 2023 is uh, now taking registrations and you can see the um, short descriptions of the presentations that will be there. APSCs is this special meeting uh, for those that are interested in APL or new to APL, but not established users yet. But anybody who wants to is of course welcome to join. And uh, to be completely clear, when uh, Adam says registration, what he means is just signing up via email. It's completely free. Uh, at least unless if anything's changed for 2023. Last last time I checked, this is a free conference, right? Yes, it is absolutely free. It's not email, though. It's a form. It's going to happen as a Zoom webinar. Okay. Small form then, but uh, yes, free conference. Highly recommend. I mean, most of the people listening to this podcast probably are already in the boat that are interested. But uh, if you know students or people that might be interested, this is like a great way to get folks that are curious about this sort of space uh, interested even more. All right, we'll go over to Stephen for his announcement. KXCon is in Montauk, New York, 17th to 20th of May. And there's a call for papers out. You can find it by going to kx.com slash events. Awesome. And it looks like that's open till February 28th. And today today's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, and this will be coming out a few days later. So <laughs> you've probably got a couple weeks. Uh, <laughs> Adam just put a little heart in the corner of his... Uh, his window on the Zoom thing. Um, so yeah, if you've got uh, you know a talk that might be worth uh, presenting at uh, KXCon, definitely go check out that link and um, uh, submit your talk. And we'll go to Bob for our last announcement. Uh, I, I was just going to say KX, KXCon is, uh, the rumors are it's going to be massive. <laughs> I heard that rumor. <laughs> like, you mean billions of people coming? or Bigger than PyCon. You won't be able to store them in KDB. <laughs> Okay. Um, I wanted to, a lot of times uh, we get excellent letters from and questions and all sorts of things from our, our uh, listening audience. Um, and I usually mention this at the end of the show as ways people get in touch with us. But but this last, just prior to the last episode, we got a, an amazing letter from somebody who talked about how much this podcast actually meant to them. And it, it honestly, it really touched our hearts. And just wanted to say to Daniel, thank you for sending that. That really, that, that, that was very kind of you to do that. And, and, and we're very happy that the podcast helps you in so many ways. And that's just excellent. And, and uh, it's not what we set out to do. 
But, uh, you know, something like that makes a huge difference to us. Thank you. Thank you for letting us know. Yeah, I'll, I'll follow up. I, I read the, the message in full and was like, yeah, made, made my day, if not week. And also, um, as a small sort of side note, one of the things Daniel mentioned, uh, hopefully this isn't revealing too much self-identifying information, is that uh, he's a, pro, a closure programmer. And this is probably a very little known fact about me, but closure, I think, is probably my third favorite programming language. And all of my, well, all of my, there's only one uh, website that I've created uh, plrank.com is written in technically closure script, but closure script is just like a subset of closure. And, uh, for folks that like array languages, um, I think closure is like a, a beautiful language. It's has very, very many similar things, uh, in terms of like composing operations together in a single statement to do nice things anyways. So for the array curious closure is a great language. Rich Hickey is a genius and made amazing decisions in creating that language. All right, we will now move to introducing our guest today. Leslie Goldsmith was mentioned on our last episode with Michael Higginson. And I think we actually, we've gotten some feedback from Leslie in the past, which hopefully is going to come up in the, uh, you know, this conversation. But a brief introduction, I believe, Leslie, you started at IPSA in 1973 and worked there for about 16 years, then went on to work at Affinity Systems, which uh, Michael covered that in a bit of his sort of background and then uh, worked there for, I think, a couple decades plus, and then have been working at KX since. I think I first heard Leslie speak during the Iverson centenary. Um, you gave a short, I don't know if you want to call it lightning talk or sort of um, just speech at the, at the beginning, and there was a bunch of folks that talked, and uh, the stories that you told, I think I recall you were talking about going to give like an oral defense at, I'm not sure if it was U of T, but the school you were defending at, and anyways... Iverson, Ken had like some words of wisdom for you that, and it was just a very funny story anyway. So I'm, I'm hopefully looking forward to hearing a lot more of those. I'll throw it over to you. Take us back as far as you want to, you know, when you had your first computer or when you first sort of entered your journey to the array languages and, and we'll go from there. Thanks very much for the introduction, Connor. Yeah, that's almost exactly right. We're pretty well done, except for it was more like 17 and a half years at IP Sharp instead of 16. But other than that, you summarized it quite well. Um, my, Introduction goes back to, to high school, actually. I was really fortunate to go to a private school in Montreal, Lower Canada College, where I was first exposed to computers. And it, it would be no exaggeration to say that LCC changed my life. Um, LCC at the time and still placed a lot of academic emphasis and athletic emphasis on high achievement. And they routinely, the students would routinely win high placements in both academics and athletics. The head of LCC's math department was a fellow by the name of John Brown, and he had written a couple of books on Euclidean geometry by the late 60s. Around the same time, he attended a pedagogical conference where he met Ken Iverson. And Ken and John somehow arranged to have IBM Yorktown Heights provide APL timesharing services to LCC based on IBM's XM6 program product running on a System 360. A little bit after that, maybe 1970 or so, IP Sharp opened its Montreal office with David Keith as a branch manager. David convinced the school to switch from IBM's APL to Sharp APL. And, uh, and, and actually, they did do that. And the APL that I ended up learning was really the Sharp APL variant, although it was based on IBM's product. LCC had started teaching courses in APL to students in the upper years, which didn't include me. And actually, that didn't bother me at all. At first, I wasn't particularly interested in computers, but I had always been very interested in mechanical and electrical devices. And the new computer terminal that we had was certainly one of those. 
the terminal was um, an IBM 2741. So if you're not familiar with this, think of a smallish desk where most of the surface was occupied by a largest machine. The device was basically an elaborate selector typewriter that was outfitted with communications capabilities and one of two type balls, either a, a 987 or a 988 for the two different communication protocols, correspondence and EPCDIC that was supported by the 2741. And it operated at a whopping 134.5 baud, which is a little over 14 characters a second. But when this thing was printing, it was pretty magical to watch. And it smelled good too. Something about the ink that they were using in the printer in the typewriter was really, really interesting. Anyhow, novel for the time, the terminal was connected to the telephone line through an Anderson Jacobs serial modem. And the modem was a really, really elegantly crafted dovetailed cornered wooden case into which you would, you would fit the handset of your telephone. And then you'd fasten the box closed to hold it in place tightly. I spent a lot of time with this machine, mostly taking it apart and putting it back together because I really had no interest in the software side. I did try to do one programming thing though, um, with zero knowledge, I might add. My uncle was a professor at the University of Montreal. And on one of my visits to his office on a Saturday, he gave me a really cool printout of a Mona Lisa facsimile, which was generated using ASCII characters on a line printer with very, very narrow line spacing. So. The characters were quite close together, both horizontally and vertically. The toning in the picture came from the creator's really clever choice of characters that had the appropriate spatial density. And the result was absolutely amazing, even close up. I wondered if I could use APL to generate this thing, and I wasted a bunch of time and paper doing that. When my grade's curriculum was expanded to include APL courses, there was some expectation by my teachers that I would do decently well, given the amount of time I was spending in the computer room. Of course, they had no idea what I was actually doing there. That turned out not to be the case, and I miserably failed the first APL test that our class received. I remember my algebra teacher pulled me aside when he handed out the marks, and he said, well, what's going on? And I embarrassingly suggested that perhaps I hadn't studied hard enough for the test, which was certainly quite the understatement. And I promised to do better on the next one. So basically I was shamed into learning a computer language. And I'm just thankful that that language happened to be APL. I started reading Gilman and Rose that night and I loved absolutely everything about the book and the notation. This was the first version of APL and interactive approach from 1970. And it predates both Unix and KNR's the C programming language, which is another excellent language manual. Gilman and Rose is a great book with lots of practical examples. It's where I first learned the, the leap year rules for the Gregorian calendar. I had always thought it was just years divisible by four, but one of the problems in the book explained that ignoring epoch extremums, a year is leap if and only if it's divisible by four, unless it's divisible by 100, unless it's divisible by 400, unless it's divisible by 4,000. I was completely unaware of the centesimal and millennial wrinkles, but note the alternating parity of the rules, which suggests that there's a nice solution using not equals reduction. If people were seriously worried about the specious, I would say Y2K problem, what they should really be worried about is either 2038 or 2100. Stuff is definitely going to break in those years. Anyhow, I started spending, spending pretty much all my free time programming, thinking of new problems to solve and um, exploring the public libraries that were available on the IP Sharp system. I went through them all. There were hundreds of them. And two in particular interested me, both for the same reason, actually. 
they both tried to keep people out. One of these libraries was a database of travel information that was maintained by the Canadian government about trips taken by politicians and civil servants. The other was an electronic mail system. They were both really, really intriguing. I got into the government system without using too much difficulty and developed a few handy techniques along the way. What I didn't know, however, was that each failed attempt to access that system was logged and reported to the government agency. The system's author made the selectric's type ball do a really captivating dance while, as I later learned, it was collecting information about the violation for a security report. This caused our school to be flagged by the RCMP, which is the national police service responsible for overseeing government security in Canada. One day they came by the school to talk to me and a couple of others who were involved. And I guess they came by to find out how much of a national risk we actually represented. And not much, I expect. But out of it, we got a day off school, a free trip to Ottawa, a job offer, and some amazing pizza at a place called Colonnade. We also got a bit of a dressing down by the headmaster, who wasn't too pleased about our antics and the attention that it had attracted. That other public library I mentioned, the mail system, was even more intriguing. IP Sharp Associates, it turned out, ran on email. It was, it was really the lifeblood of the company and of some of its customers, well before SMTP was even proposed. By breaking into the mail system, I was able to see things that, well, it's safe to say I wasn't supposed to see. Lots of confidential, for your eyes only type of stuff, but the eyes weren't supposed to be mine. Even some assignations here, here and there, and certainly some embarrassing stuff. I reported what I had done to the operations group at IP Sharp. And the author of the code, Larry Breed from Scientific Timesharing Corporation, STSC, um, made some quick fixes. And we repeated the cycle a few times. He'd provide a new release to me. I'd break into it. He'd go back and make some more changes. Um, and I developed even more techniques along the way that were helpful in helping me to protect my applications from others. At the school, we were getting pretty good at the computer stuff by this point. And David Keith, the IP Sharp Montreal branch manager, got to know a couple of us quite well. When LCC approached David and asked if he would write a computerized report card system for the school, David suggested that they give the project to me and my classmate, Gary Benjamin. The big selling point there was probably that we wouldn't charge anything for it. But this was great. In complete secrecy from the other students at the school, but using the same computer terminal and the same account as everyone else was using, we wrote and ran the student record subsystem, as we called it, from that point until when we graduated. Gary actually graduated a year before I did. But from all that I had learned, I was pretty confident that no one would be able to get into it, even, even if they knew that it, that it was actually there. A stroke of luck for me came when David Bunyan at IP Sharp offered me the job of writing a new mail system for IPSA one that I couldn't break into when I was 16. The new system was designed, was supposed to be functionally comparable to the existing one, but I was given carte blanche in terms of its inner workings and of the details of the features and capabilities that I wanted to put in it. Now, this was, this was truly an epitome project and it was lots of fun to write. The thing about an email system though, is that the read-write pattern isn't really typical for most database applications. It's generally appropriate to optimize a database for reads over writes, but the ratio of reads to writes in our mail system was a shade over two to one. And it would have been closer to parity, in fact, if it were not for the capability that we supported address groups. So it was really easy to send a message to lots of people. 
This means that you have to optimize simultaneously for both reception and sending. And that turns out to be a lot harder than it sounds. The mailbox, as it was called, wasn't my first project for IP Sharp. It was actually my second. The first was writing a news system to inform time-sharing users of planned or release changes to the APL library system. Um, sorry, to the to the APL system or to the libraries that we that we were supporting. As a side note, I remember that in 1974, a bit later, someone decided to expand the news system's purview by releasing an article about Nixon's resignation. As as an international company with lots of users in the States, you can imagine that didn't go over very well. The item was retracted pretty quickly, actually. I started working for IP Sharp during the summer before my final year of high school and continued throughout that final year. This, as, as you know, is the time when you have to start worrying about university placements. And um, I was trying to decide what I wanted to go into. Software was my passion, but I figured that I already knew how to program. I didn't, however, have the foggiest idea about how computers actually worked. So I decided to apply to electrical engineering faculties. I was accepted at some pretty attractive places in Canada and the US, but because IP Sharp's head office was in Toronto, I decided to go there. I made the decision to go to University of Toronto. And from there, I got my BASC and MASC degrees in electrical engineering concurrently with working pretty well full-time for IP Sharp. And I continued at IPSA after graduating. Interestingly, although Arthur and I overlapped in time at U of T, we didn't actually share any courses. This was partly, I expect, because he was in computer science and I was in electrical. But even though I took some courses from the CSC department, we somehow didn't manage to be taking the same thing at the same time. We did have some great discussions about algorithms back at the office though. IP Sharp was a fantastic experience. And those of us who were lucky enough to work there knew just how lucky we were at the time. It was a place of amazing talent and there were virtually limitless possibilities in an atmosphere of absolute trust and respect. Our colleagues at, at IPSA became our friends or more in some cases. And to this day, some of those people are my closest friends. I got, to, I got to work on lots of great projects at IP Sharp, both in APL and in 360 Assembler, enhancing the core APL system. I think one of the best ways to learn a language is to read other people's code, something I still do now. And there were beautiful examples of 360 Assembler behind the scenes. This influenced both my writing style and my commenting style in Assembler and in other languages, even APL. One of the system enhancements that I made was it was involved with extending the APL event trapping mechanism that had been implemented by Eric Iverson. I proposed and implemented a system variable that offered a kind of dynamic runtime contract between the programmer and the interpreter regarding the interruptibility of a program. This finally made some of the attack vectors that I'd exploited years earlier impossible. This proposal actually was part of my master's thesis. One section of it had to do with system enhancements to APL that could improve security. My interest in security and performance led to work on APL tools for programmers at IPSA, including a bunch of stuff on searching, static analysis, and text editors. The culmination of this was building a secure programming environment for APL that included a hierarchical file system with version control and features to help write, organize, build, deploy, and run complex applications that were too big to fit in a workspace. This product, which we called Logos, was created by David Allen, Mark Dempsey, Kevin Harrell, and myself. 
Logos was, of course, written, deployed, and run using Logos, which is, I think, one of the things you have to do if you're going to build a programming language or an environment. As a show of confidence in its security, I moved the mailbox into it as soon as I could. Over the years, we made lots of improvements to the mailbox. Dave Marquick, Henry Schuler, and I added cross-domain support by networking IP Sharp's computers with capabilities from IBM's SNADs, PROFs, and DISOS systems in the early to mid-80s. We actually tried to get connected to the internet around 1986, but we were sadly denied. The internet rules for commercial dot-com entities at the time was that they, they had to be involved in either government or educational um, activities in order to be admitted. It looks like they kind of backed off that requirement at this point. But when one mailbox node was able to talk to another, it offered 100% of the features that it had always offered, including fail-safe security, ir irrefutable authorship, guaranteed message delivery, real-time message retraction. That was certainly a favorite among its users. Disseminated pending and unread message state, address and group interrogation, out-of-office notifications, and lots and lots of other things. In 1987, Reuters acquired IP Sharp, and the workplace began to change. It was still fun, but it was becoming more political and the overall mission less clear due to a general decline in, in the timesharing industry. About a year after the acquisition, Hugh Hyman and I, a close colleague, got together and we started talking about the future. We were both directors of development, but we felt the time was right to leave and to start our own company. With Ian Sharp's blessing, in, in 1989, we founded Affinity Systems with the goal of offering premium quality software consulting and product development services. Culture was really important to us, and we wanted to emulate the respectful atmosphere that Ian had nurtured and in which both Hugh and I had had the privilege of growing up. Affinity had the opportunity to work with some terrific people and terrific customers in all kinds of diverse areas. We built trading systems, financial analytics products, imaging systems, internet crawlers, and sentiment analysis systems at internet scale. Really, really hard stuff. We built Indigo Books' first website, Mastermind Toys' first website, Globe Investor Gold, Webkin's Jr. for GANs, and several key healthcare applications for Cancer Care Ontario. We also built mission-critical control room software for the ISO, the independent electricity system operator that runs the electricity grid in Ontario. We had the privilege of working side-by-side with some, some of the best and brightest people in these industries and learning from them. It was really a fantastic time. One project that was to change the course of affinity systems was work we did for the smart metering entity, the SME within the ISO. The SME handles the collection and dissemination of smart metering data from electricity meters across the province. So all the meters on the sides of houses or, or um, commercial institutions, commercial establishments feed the IESO's system. As well as collecting the data, they also are responsible for the calculation of billing determinants from that data. About 10 years ago, the IESO was looking at alternate ways to provide query access to the smart metering, metering data to overcome performance problems that they were having with their existing systems and also to pave the way for public access to that data, which was a, a growing interest in the province and in the world in general. We looked at dozens of possible technologies to address the business problem and ended up choosing KDB Plus, despite the fact that, that we at Affinity Systems had never used it before. Our experience with KX, with KDB Plus, and with first derivatives led to our being acquired by FD in 2015. Many of our 
of our top-notch Java, C, C++, and C-sharp developers went on to become top-notch Q developers. Michael Higginson, for example, who was a recent guest here, is a, is a perfect example of an array convert. Most of my time spent at FD and KX has been building the KX Sensors product, which is a high-performance data acquisition and analysis platform for industries such as utilities, semiconductor, manufacturing, telco, pharma, and so forth. It's challenging work because although it sounds like a really, really easy problem to solve, we have the requirement for absolutely nonstop performance, even during functional and database upgrades, and a requirement to ingest and be able to analyze and query in real time a huge amount of data. And this is really what makes the problem challenging and for which we think KDB was an absolutely perfect choice. That's kind of it. Um, I could talk more about the present, but that's certainly a, a lead up to, to where we are now and, and how I got here. Oh, that's something. <laughs> uh, all right, this is going to be, I got, this is one of the episodes where I just have a thousand questions. I mean, so first of all, uh, this is really not that important of all the things he said. So when you said Lower Canada College, for those that you don't know, um, that are listeners, uh, I live in Toronto and Leslie also lives in Toronto. So I just figured that you'd always grown up in Toronto. And so when I heard Lower, Lower Canada College, I instantly thought, I had no idea there was a Lower Canada College in Toronto. Like there's an Upper Canada College that like makes sense that there'd be a lower one. And then I went and Googled it and it says that that's in Montreal. So, and you, you had mentioned that you had, was it a, a relative that worked at the University of Montreal? Um, right. So you grew up in Montreal then for the, your childhood until you went to university. Is that, that's accurate? That's right. I left Montreal when I was 16, actually. Before my first job at IP Sharp, David Keith, branch manager of the Montreal office, got me a job at an investment house in Toronto. So in the summer of 1973, while I was in between my, my penultimate and my ultimate year at high school, I worked for a Toronto company. And then it was while I was working for that company, Canavest House, that I got to write the news system for IP Sharp and in the same summer, the mail system for IP Sharp. So I was kind of working on two jobs at the same time. And then I went back to LCC to finish high school. And then moved to U of T where you had started working for IP Sharp in the summer and then continued to do that for the entire duration of your uh, post, or I guess undergraduate and postgraduate studies. Uh, That's right. After graduating from LCC, I moved to Toronto immediately and had made arrangements in the spring of that year to work not as a programmer, but as an operator running the APL timesharing system, along with a group of other people, of course. And I wanted to do this because... I wanted experience on the operations side. And, uh, and that's what I did in the summer of 1974. It was a great job, actually. A good opportunity to meet a slightly different group of people with whom I would have had interaction anyhow, but also to learn what it took to, to, to operate the system, to run backups and restores, to handle emergencies when they occurred, to cause emergencies in some cases by pressing the wrong button. Um, yeah, but it was, it was good all around. Wow. And I, I can't help but think that like, like we all have heard your name, obviously, and some of some of us know you much better than I do. But like you've told a story, basically, where you were this like hacker of like to the extent where the police are showing up at your school. Uh, like, is is were you like famous? Like at, at your like Leslie's this individual that uh, was unintentionally or maybe intentionally, or you know, you said you didn't really realize what it was doing. Uh, but but like. That's and then you ended up, like you said, going in cycles and fixing things along the way. Like that's uh, like I hear that story, and then I think about like someone like George Holtz, who 
maybe personality-wise is much different. I'm not sure if you're familiar who he is, but you know, it's the first person to hack the iPhone and has been become quite the social media figure and you know twitch live streams and stuff but like when i hear your story i think about that like is there is there are are you are you a part of some like you know uh dark circle of like hackers that like won some sort of badge (laughs) for getting the police to show up like it's it's just an incredible story i don't generally tell that story (laughs) i don't talk about (laughs) that part of my past um i just thought it might be interesting but nobody at the school short of the staff, sort of the teachers and the headmaster, knew about this. Uh, except there was, <laughs> it was interesting the day that the RCMP showed up. What happened was the headmaster came by and found what class I was in, and he was at the entrance to the class. Everyone feared the headmaster, by the way. He was this kind of dominating guy. He was overbearing, and you knew that when he spoke, you listened. Anyhow, he came by the the door of our class and he looked around the classroom until he saw me and then he pointed his menacing finger at me and then motioned come here without saying anything and I pointed to myself saying me and had this quizzical look and he nodded so I had to leave the class and everyone in the class knew something was wrong but of course they assume that something's really wrong that you've done something wrong and that you're going to get whacked or something like that Uh, anyhow I went to his office and uh, in the office were several people from the RCMP I had no idea what was going on and he explained that there had been some reasons for concern because it looked like there had been some illicit activity perpetrated by someone against this particular government database. And the source of that activity was tracked to our account number on the IP Sharp system. And they were obviously able to track that to the school directly. So I had an opportunity to describe what I had done and why, and I made it clear I I wasn't interested in any of the details of the database, and I wasn't going to do anything with the data. I was just fascinated by the problem of breaking into it, and especially this psychotic dance that the type ball was doing, not realizing that every time I did that and watched it in amazement, it was another violation that was being logged. So this this was all unknown to the students, and that whole thing about writing the report card system for LCC, that also was unknown to the students. So I wasn't well known except within IP Sharp and the APL community where I did start to have a name. And how did the headmaster, did he just assume because you spent the most time of all the students that it was like you or? or yes. They, okay. Because <laughs> he wouldn't have had any idea. There was nothing to track my name. We were all using right. the same account number. Right. So it was just how much time you were spending there. Right. So, so I've got a question. When you were in the office with the headmaster and the RCMP, I have a guess that you were more frightened of the headmaster than the RCMP. The RCMP were pretty intimidating. Oh, okay. And um, there were discussions at the time of reprisals. Oh, okay. So it wasn't comfortable. I was actually relieved to walk out of there and go back to class. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And were you allowed to tell the story when you got back to class? Because I bet there were a lot no. No, no, no. I I don't know what was said to me about telling or not telling the story, but to me, the whole thing was embarrassing. So I wasn't going to tell anyone except my parents. Oh, how did your parents react? Were they proud or were they uh, were they upset? <laughs> I I think they were kind of proud. It's an interesting story, but uh, there was probably a bit of head shaking. I don't really quite recall, to be honest. I didn't get reprimanded at home for it. I know that. If anything, they were probably supportive. But since I was honest in my intent, um, I think that made it okay. And that was clear too from breaking into the email system. For example, as soon as I'd done it, I reported it. So I felt that 
if I had known with respect to that government system that I was actually doing something wrong, I would have reported it too, but I wouldn't have known to whom to report it. With the email system, since it was an IP sharp thing, it was easier to figure out what to do. Yeah. Anyhow, I think it was pretty clear I wasn't really a threat. <laughs> it is It is interesting that like probably these days, if not that you would really have the ability, like, but if you were pinging some database, you'd probably get some message saying like, you know, it's not allowed, et cetera. But your feedback was the the dance of the right <laughs> of the, so like you know how, how are you supposed to interpret that right something um, i wanted to do more of or see more of <laughs> and in fact in the student Steve. record subsystem that we wrote i incorporated some similar security to it with the same kind of type ball dance while we recorded illicit access to the application so we knew nobody had tried to get in interesting steven i was a user of the replacement mailbox system as you wrote for ip sharp associates and i have to say it was an inspiration to me as a young junior programmer one of the great features about the apl systems in in that environment was you could interrupt them pretty much anywhere and when you did that all the pieces were laid out when you're developing uh, did, I mean, this is a world away from, oh, what, what were the alternative environments at that time? Compiling Fortran, something like that. Fortran, right? Yeah, yeah, that was my first language, Fortran. So with the APL system, you it, you just interrupt it somewhere and see what would, and inspect all the variables. And um, it's, it's stuff we take for granted now, but APL was literally, I think, decades ahead of most other environments. And damn it, you could not do that with 666 mailbox. <laughs> right. So one of the things that intrigued me so much about the email system was that, as you said, in APL, when you interrupted something, you had access to all of the, you had the ex access to the execution stack, the function names on the execution stack, the local variables, if they weren't shadowed, the sub functions, which were always there as globals. And you always had access to the global variables. And if you think about what it would take to build an application like an email system and have it perform decently, you have to figure that whatever you're doing to authenticate a user, you can't do that every time they ask to do something. You have to do that and set up certain variables that relate to who they are, um, messages that they've sent and received possibly, uh, groups to which they subscribe, permissions, authorizations, things like that. You have to set this up and do it once. And then you have to be able to use that repeatedly and know that nobody has interceded to forge the person's identity or to forge their credentials within that identity. And that was impossible to do in APL. Absolutely impossible. I don't mean hard. But what Larry had done was, because Larry was one of the implementers of APL 360, when he implemented the mailbox, realizing this conundrum, he made changes to the interpreter to make it so that names that were in the symbol table of the mailbox workspace at the time he ran a certain function were locked into the symbol table. He did that by mapping the print names so that the first character of the name was a symbol. It was itself a symbol. So if the name were ABC, that might've become times BC. And if you were to type times BC, of course, that's not gonna be interpreted as a print name. And so he, he made two changes. One is to map the names of the objects in the symbol table so they were untypable. And the second thing was to change the interpreter so that it would not print these untypable names. And the result was that there were zero global variables in the workspace that you could see, except for the thing called scribe, which was the documentation. The only functions you could see were the public ones, no sub-functions. If you interrupted the program, there were no local variables ever, and all of the functions other than the root function had no names. 
I have waited nearly half a century to fit to learn how you did that. Well, it wasn't it wasn't me who did it. It was Larry who did it. But I used the same technique and then extended it to do a couple of other things to provide the security that we had. But that means this couldn't be done, right? It it is something you had to the system from the from outside of API had to allow for this hacky thing of giving names that are not legal. Yeah. It could only be done if you run a privileged terminal and you ran a magic function that we had. So the average user couldn't do it. Right. The okay. only application to which we did it at the time was the mailbox. There was another one too. Um, I wrote another system called 666 Numbrek, which was responsible for creating accounts in the system and authorizing them. And that system had the same security as the mailbox did, but we didn't use it anywhere else. You spoke before about... Um... APL functions controlling how you were allowed to suspend them. That is that this that you're talking about? Or did you said you added a mechanism or like a system variable that controlled that? Right. It was a variable called quadi C, which stood for environment condition, a Boolean value that had a default if you localized it that said you don't allow suspension. And then if you're if in execution, the program reached a point where the programmer had said, looks like everything is safe here. I'm okay to allow suspension. You could set quad EC to one. Now, this transition point of not being safe to suspend to being safe to suspend was usually around your having set up event traps that would pick up any interruptions that might occur. But before that point, before the traps were in place, you're exposed. Quad EC guaranteed that you couldn't be exposed. So typically what you would do is you'd localize quad EC and quad trap. You were fail safe until you set quad EC to, to one. And in the meantime, you could do whatever you wanted to do, in particular, setting up your event traps, which would cover, if you wanted, interrupts and any errors. Then you would set quad EC to one, saying everything's cool. And now your system was pretty safe. And um, you, you couldn't interrupt before it reached the setting of quad EC? I don't understand. What would happen is we allowed the interrupt, but we peeled the stack back until the nearest higher lexic level that had quad EC set to one. That might've been all the way back, or it might've been just one or two levels. Because of course it's nests. Oh, oh mm, yeah, now I forget where all these values are. Anyway, we might be getting really technical, but is it, the reason I'm asking about this is actually a, a personal interest. I've been wanting to to do this and that in Dialog APL, we, we kind of have a thing, we have something locked functions that are more fine-grained than just locked or not locked, where you can set particular behavior that you can't suspend in this function. But that's part of the definition time of the function, at definition time of the function, rather than the function itself saying, I cannot be interrupted. Oh, right, now I, remember, now I understand, right. As soon as you localize it, then, and that happens immediately when you step into the function. That's right. Then you're safe. Right. Ah, okay. Yeah, that's why. Otherwise, if, if you had to wait for it to be set, then it would be too late. That's might. right. It has a default value as soon as you localize it. So there's... Which is different from the normal default value. That's right. There's no opportunity for, for the user to intercede. Hey, maybe we should just do that. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you have the solution already. All right. A, a higher level question. So I, I think this was... Uh, I think it was Michael uh, Higginson was the one that mentioned this to me. I could be misattributing this to him, but I'm, I'm sure he would agree if, even if he didn't say this, uh, was when we first met in September at that Toronto APL meetup. I remember in the midst of talking about sort of technology companies and, and IP Sharp, uh, I think his remark was that, you know, he thinks 
or even if maybe it's not true, he thinks it's it's debatable whether like what the greatest Canadian technology company has been. And most uh, one of the top answers is typically BlackBerry, um, at least, you know, in terms of global sort of awareness, et cetera. Um, but I think he said that like IP Sharp is a contender, if not one of the greatest technology companies. And it's just very few people have heard of it from... You know, I, I guess if you worked with them at the time, you heard of it, maybe back in the 70s and 80s. It was a, uh, I don't know if it was equivalent to like, you know, a company like Google, probably not as sort of widely known. But I'm just curious to get your thoughts because you worked there for 17 and a half years. And I'm sure you, I, I think you had mentioned at the Iverson Centenary that you, you know, worked in the zoo as well, which I've right. seen uh, a dialogue video. I think it was by Bob Bernecki that was talking about sort of what it's like to work in the zoo and just like, there's so much history and um, like, you know, the stories of the email, basically. It was like the first company by a couple decades that was operating off of email. Anyway, so just curious, like your thoughts on IP Sharp as a, like this amazing technological te- technology company that people haven't heard of. And, and yeah, if you can say more about that or what your thoughts are when you hear that. Well, I think it'd be pretty difficult, hard, and maybe unfair to compare it to a company like Google or BlackBerry, simply because the products that Google and BlackBerry offered were of general appeal and availability. And that wasn't the case with APL. In order to use an APL timesharing system, you were probably a government agency, a bank, or a forward-thinking company. Xerox, for example, Kodak, Cybron, Bosch & Loam, these companies were big users of APL. You might also have been an educational institution, but you weren't the average person who had a problem to solve because you wouldn't have been able to afford the timesharing costs and the equipment necessary in order to connect to the system. On the other hand, if you think about what Google or BlackBerry requires, the barrier to entry to becoming a customer of either of those companies is extremely low. In Google's case, it's zero. In BlackBerry, it was growing growing to be a necessity to have a smartphone, and that was arguably the best one out there. So pretty low barrier to entry if you had any interest. So, but, but among the people who knew about IP Sharp, and, uh, and that, would, that would be its customers and its employees, obviously, it was highly regarded. And within the industry, it was groundbreaking for sure. There were a lot of articles written about Ian and about the great work that the company had done and about the things that we had achieved as firsts within the world, including the pervasive use of email. Um, that, by the way, was a really, really hard thing to, to manage. You know, in, in the early to mid-70s, even in the late 70s, there were governments of various countries, Britain's a great example, the UK, where there were monopolies within the countries for controlling communication services. And this typically dated back to the 16th or 17th centuries. And in the case of Britain, the general post office, the GPO, had a monopolistic authority over anything that involved point-to-point communication. So where somebody was sending something to somebody else, whether that was by mail or by wireless or by telegraph or whatever. And so when email came out, the GPO insisted on regulating and preventing IP Sharp's use of electronic mail. And so did many countries in Europe. So in order to be able to offer email at the time, we had to convince each country one by one and some other neighboring countries precedent wasn't good. We had to convince each country that we weren't a threat to their monopoly. And in many cases, the the argument which was promulgated by Ian and by other locals 
the, the backroom finessing that they managed to pull off was based on the fact that in the end, we would be using telecommunications capabilities that they were, as a result of their monopoly, in charge of anyhow. So we weren't denying anyone anything. In the end, the services relied on existing services over which they unequivocally had control. But it was a real uphill battle. In some cases, we just used email behind the scenes, even if we said we weren't going to. Eventually, countries capitulated and we had we had the generally accepted right to use it everywhere, but it was a it was a hard slog. So we were definitely breaking new ground on many fronts at the time. And um, Ian was quite well known in the industry. He was a a very very good speaker, and you know he was funny and he was always on point. And um, as a result, he got to to talk about the computer business in general, Canada's role in it, IP Sharp, of course, at many conferences. So within a certain niche, I think it's fair to say we were very well known, but as far as the average person on the street was concerned, of course, we wouldn't have been because they wouldn't have had any opportunity to use or even to think about using computer services in those days. Yeah, it just seems, it seems kind of incredible that they're this Canadian technology company in the, was it founded in the 60s and it was massive in 70s and 80s and like so few people, I guess it makes sense, like even I work for NVIDIA and there's a ton of people that like I would say 90% of people don't know that company of like the general population. And if you point to like the little sticker on the laptop and you're like, Oh, that's the, we make uh, that thing. And they're like, Oh yeah, we kind of know what that is. But it's uh yeah, it's just kind of sad. Cause you know, there's how many books have been written about Blackberry and stuff like that. And like, you know, I want to read the seven different books. I'm sure that could be written with even more amazing stories than like the fall of Blackberry than uh, sort of the, the rise of, of IP sharp and, and like, you know, there could be a whole book on the zoo and there's just so many people that we're, we're meeting from this company that have gone on to do different things. And, uh, it just, yeah. When you hear that Ian's giving all these talks, I'm just like, man, why wasn't YouTube around like two decades earlier? So we could have these, like, you know, finding a talk, even by Ken, who is, you know, obviously a Turing award winner. There's like, you know, one or two that are more than 30 minutes online. And then you can find a few little two or four minute clips, but um, it just seems like such a, for someone that is curious like me and wants to see this stuff, like that we live in this now golden age of everything's recorded at conferences and we can go watch it. But, um, you know, the closest you'll get to like a talk in the nineties or something or eighties is like a slide deck, which I have emailed people before. Like I emailed Guy Steele once he gave a talk called, um, why or how APL can change the world. And, uh, the recording wasn't available, but I emailed him and he, without any, you know, uh, text in the email message, just sent me back the slide deck in PDF form. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very sad that, you know, these talks aren't line, aren't online for, for people that are curious to go and watch. Cause I, I think it'd be amazing. Uh, I don't know what year that was. I certainly know Guy, but I, I remember giving presentations, slide decks, so to speak, that were literally glass slides in a Kodak carousel. And we had to lug these around from conference to conference, um, never in our carry-on, of course, because even at the time, we didn't trust that. But putting these slides together was a tour de force. The, often there was artwork that had to be created. Typesetting anything wasn't easy. And the artwork was line drawings, typically. And then we used wax cut and paste, literally the, the origin of the phrase cut and paste, to strip it onto a sheet that we would then take a photographic quality, um, high resolution picture of, and then that would be transferred onto glass. It was a lot of work. <laughs> it's 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 interesting, like the the shift of a couple decades. Like when you were talking about the IBM twenty seven forty one, I think it was like I looked up an image of it, and it's like a, like literally you were explaining it a full desk desk with like a computer built into it, 
And versus like when I was in elementary school, we had the colorful uh, IMAX and like people weren't taking those apart. People were just playing the, you know, Bugdom was like the game on it, you know, for whatever 2% of our listeners happen to have the same computer in the same game. And it's like, and then shift forward to like making presentations. Now you can put together a, a very nice, you know, PowerPoint or keynote in like 10 minutes. And, and your version of that was I, like, I was expecting you to say, what do you call that? The overhead projectors with the, um, uh, the plastic material, but like, no, it's even, it's even more difficult than that. It's, it's, it's uh, sheets of glass. Overhead projectors came later. We did do that too. The nice thing about transparencies on overhead projectors that you can write on them in real time. So that was handy. If you're giving a presentation at a conference, you can circle something or you can put an asterisk beside something. The equivalent of highlighting digitally, you'd actually do with uh, an erasable marker on the film. Yeah. All of this talk of the conferences from decades ago makes me think we got to do this array con and there's got to be like a certain percentage of talks of like bringing back the greats that like people from my generation never got to hear or see speak. And then we can record it, put it on YouTube. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would have, I, what I would have given, like, even when you mentioned that, um, I always forget that Arthur Whitney went to a U of T, um, because I just, I associate all my brain space and connected to him as the K1, K2, K3, K4, K5, K6, K7, K9, Shakti, uh, A plus, like he's done so much stuff that I forget. Oh, right. At some point he was studying. Um, and so, yeah, like if, if, yeah, if, if he would ever speak at a conference like that. But hey, speaking of Arthur, like, so you said you attended U of T at the same time as him. Was he also working at IP Sharp though at the same, like doing the same thing that you were doing, working full-time basically while, while studying? And that's because you said you got to have some interesting conversations about algorithms with him. I assume that was uh, at IP Sharp. That's right. It was back at, back at our offices. I am not sure whether he was working full-time or not. He was definitely working at the company, and, but he was in a different group. He was working for the databases group. That was actually David Keith's group. And um, I didn't have anything to do with them at the time. I was on the system side. So our interactions were strictly academic. And we had some good discussions about algorithms and how they worked, whiteboarding things. And it was a lot of fun. What was the general, like, I don't know if you want to go into org structure, but like, you know, I've worked for several different companies in my limited compare uh, limited career compared to the, some of the folks on the call and different companies have different things like they'll have weekly sort of um you know one one company called them interest group meetings where it'd be an hour and one person would present on something they were working on but it would always devolve into or not devolve evolve into a sort of discussion of the technical merits like w was there lots of stuff like that or was it mostly people were contained to their groups or they or they like how often were there sort of you know cross company or is everything so distributed globally with working on email that having meetings like that doesn't happen very often? Uh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, the company was international. We had over 50 cities in which we had offices. So although Toronto was the largest single office, we had a lot of people in some other places. Rochester, New York is a good example. So the opportunities for people to get together between offices were not that common. They happen obviously at user meetings. Management would get together. They would have branch managers conferences, but that wasn't technical. And um, the main form of communication was, was definitely email where there were really no boundaries as a result of the fact that the company's approach to hierarchy was very, very flat to begin with. There were really no boundaries in that sense. And whatever perceived geographic dispersion there was, was mitigated by, by email. So people talked all the time and exchange ideas and you know test versions of software were made available 
to people through email, et cetera. Um, but in Toronto, there was, and probably this is true of other cities as well, it was definitely true of Rochester. There were groups of people who routinely got together, both socially and, and to discuss technical problems. In Toronto, there was a room that was referred to as the beanbag room. So some listeners will have some physical, some mental recollection of what that looked like. Um, and people would go there every every evening around six o'clock and spend maybe half an hour or an hour. And we would always be talking about interesting stuff, technical problems or what's going on in the world or whatever. But it was a good opportunity to exchange problems that people were having with whatever they were working on. It was kind of like the water cooler. I recall the beanbag room on a visit to the Toronto office. Um, one of our colleagues took me in there for a discussion. And while we were talking, the door cracked open and a, a very hairy face uh, leaned in and said, the Mounties are in reception. Is this room clean? What? There were things that went on in the beanbag room that were not atypical for a software company at the time. So there was concern that there might be some materials in the room, let's say, that would have been frowned upon by any official agency. Substances. Oh. <laughs> Wasn't a deal with the between uh, STSC and IPSA that they would supply each other with such substances so that they didn't because one was headquartered in, in America and one in Canada by supplying each other um, this for that then they didn't need to try to take anything across the border. I am not aware of that. We certainly had some arrangements between the two companies. The two sister companies worked together very closely for a while. For example, the technologies related to the file system and Quad FMT, which originally was called Delta FMT, the report formatter, were jointly developed and shared. And um, so was the email system, but not in source code form. The email system that uh, that I had broken into that Larry wrote was the property of STSC. That's partly why IP Sharp wanted to have somebody write a version that IP Sharp owned. But as far as sharing things other than software artifacts, I'm or or the ability to use each other's site as disaster recovery locations in the event something serious happened, I'm not aware of any relationship. In other words, you can either confirm or deny. Okay, get it. All right. So the, I still have a bunch of topics, but I feel like I feel like I should just say a bunch of stuff and then you can just talk about whatever you want to because you probably know the the most interesting of the answers. So a couple of the things, you know, um, you've mentioned Larry Breed, obviously Ken Iverson was a part of the company. Uh, we haven't really talked about your thoughts on like APL versus Q. And then there's also the, um, I, can't, I can't even really recall what the feedback was, but I recall back in, I want to say November or something, we were doing one of those Iversonian, is it an Iversonian language? And uh, your feedback had been something that, uh, some criteria that we talked about that uh, if it didn't have or something, there were some strong feelings. Um, anyway, so like any of, or all of it, you can go one by one or you can choose which, which, which are the best. Uh, Cause yeah, I, I, we're, we're already coming up on the hour mark here. Um, and, and I feel like, I mean, we've still got some more time, but I, uh, I won't have time to ask all my <laughs> questions. So there's all the stuff that is at like the top of the list of my list of things. And you can just choose which ones you want to respond to. Well, the, comment that I had made late last year had to do with material that was discussed on, on Nick's interview with you. And it had to do with specifically what might be a defining characteristic of an array language. And I think the discussion actually went back to an earlier podcast that I hadn't listened to at the time. 
And because you actually had a whole session on that essentially, but out of context, just listening to Nick's talk, I, I felt that people were talking about the internal representation of an array as being either a collection of lists, a list of lists, or as being a single allocation of contiguous memory, suggesting that that could be one of the characteristics that defined whether a language was an array language. And I had pointed out that I think this would have been anathema to Ken, whose attitude with respect to anything that related to the implementation of a language was not the purview of the definition of the language. So he drew a stark line between the language definition over which he had control and anything to do with necessitating what it would take to make that be a commercial enterprise. So for example, this is something I didn't appreciate in the early years of my being involved with IP Sharp until I started having discussions with people in the zoo and with Ken. Things like the way the primitives worked was squarely Ken's domain, but anything that began with write paren, a system command, quad, a system variable or a system function, or before that, delta being a keyword, delta FMT, delta FF, or FF underscore, I should say, delta FI, delta VI, delta FD, delta WUS, those were the keywords. Those were outside of Ken's area of interest. And he basically said, do whatever you want with them. But when it came to the language primitives, the operators, the functions, the way they interacted, what was an error and what wasn't, he felt very strongly that that should be something that was tightly controlled, that was extended only with careful thought, and as much as possible, where there was agreement in the industry about the direction things should go in. Something that we lost with APL2, by the way, that split between the Axiom system that Trenchard Moore and, and Jim Brown proposed very much bifurcated the APL community along the lines of either Trenchard Moore's view or Ken's view, which IP Sharp stuck with. And Dialogue actually supports both, basically, by having a compatibility mode. Uh, no. No, that's, uh, that's, a, that's another split. That was the Mars APL2 split. There's Quad MC, I think it is, isn't it? Quad, quad ML only changes quad ML. The, the behavior of certain primitives. And it's mostly, I mean, it's very little, but this doesn't change the array model in itself. It's true. It doesn't change what happens if you do an enclose of a scalar, for example. Right. But there was still some attempt to support. Yeah. I mean, dialogue is still firmly a nested, um, nested floating, whatever you want to call it. Uh, As opposed to? Boxed. Uh, sharp, which is grounded or flatter. Except the thing about Ken's notation was the enclose of a scalar was a distinct object yeah yeah and and in dialogue never and close wasn't degenerate yeah was there not a formal proof that the the two systems were incompatible yes there were there were attempts at at unifying them uh, in the early 80s i think and then but but it was you mm. could be clearly shown that that's not possible they're not compatible with each other well i mean yeah two equals enclosed or two match enclosed two holds in one language and not the other so but you could have um, and I, I've even heard this seriously proposed. We in the APL two family uses uh, the uh, subset symbol or left shoe for enclose, and the the boxing family uses less than magnetic less than. You could have both boxes and enclosures where enclosing a simple scalar doesn't change it, but boxing it does change it. Um, but even so, the rest of the language breaks down. Yeah, it's not immediately obvious to me that that's impossible. <laughs> but you could choose. You could you could have an implementation that simultaneously allowed the user to choose. That is, it supports both, but you make a choice. 
wasn't uh, Sharp APL originally uh, a, a hacked um, STC APL plus where they changed this? So they actually did change it from being a, a floating type system to be a, a netflap. The box services. I think you're thinking of the Unix implementation. Yeah, the original. Not the mainframe implementation. The mainframe implementation never had any of the uh, of the Axiom system concepts that Trenchard Moore's system had. However, the Unix system, we had two versions. There was IP Sharp's original implementation, which I shouldn't say Unix system here in this case. There was an original implementation of um of an, a 360 emulator that Roger built. And this this would be Roger Moore, right? That's right, Roger Moore. He, if, yeah, sorry. Fed with not Roger Huey. Supposedly Roger needs no last name, but that's a different <laughs> Roger. It, it was literally fed with the source code of the system. Right. And it executed absolutely faithfully to the letter, the principle of operations of the system 360, system 370s architecture. It was a bit slow though. So that was the, actually the original version on the PC. STSC had a version of their own language on the PC, and then they built a version for Unix. When we were getting into the Unix market, we were trying to decide whether we should go the route of emulation or whether we should do some other approach that would be more native. And the drawback with emulation is that it is slow. So we opted instead to adopt STSC's system, but we had to make it be Sharp APL-like. And so there was a change of Axiom system, an implementation of the event trapping that I alluded to earlier that Eric and I had worked on. This was all done after the fact to change the facade of that implementation. The difficulty is that some of the key elements of the way SCSC system worked went as far down and were as deeply ingrained as the way syntax analysis and parsing worked and the way the internal representation of the code was stored. So the changes were definitely not superficial or cosmetic. They were deeply rooted in the implementation and it took a long time to, to make it be more sharp APL-like. So Adam, that's probably what you're referring to. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, you, didn't, you didn't get tempted to follow Arthur's route with um, sharp APL HP. As in implement it natively for some HP architecture? I'm struggling a little bit here. I thought he'd written that in C. The version of APL that STSC built, not sure if I'm answering your question here, but the version of APL that STSC built was written in C. The the reason the reason I'm asking this um, to, uh, if I can put this in a nutshell, is that when Arthur came down to IP Sharp in Sydney in was his eighty two something like something like this, he was on his brief was to implement the Sharp APL interpreter on a Hewlett-Packard 1000 mini computer. Uh, and if from memory, a <laughs> bit of a stretch, at that time, I, I heard that the uh, Sharp APL interpreter was a half megabyte program. And the speed that was wanted from the HP mini computer was available to a program as long as it stayed within its 80K core, um, which was sort of like a factor of uh, six compression and should have been a game changer. At, um, and, and what Arthur did was to rebuild the Sharp APL interpreter from scratch, starting with some of the newer features like nested arrays. I'm not aware of that. Uh of that activity at all. 
I am aware that he built very, very compact, as in one page, implementations of APL subsets. It was two columns on the page, though, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a whole, whole other story. We'll go there some other time. So just to, because I'm a, got a little bit lost. The Whenever it comes to this IBM 2 versus Sharp APL stuff, I think it's come up maybe three or four times on this podcast. And maybe one of the times I think I got some insights from the discussion and the other three times I still was unclear. And then even there was some acknowledgement from people on this panel that are much more experts in the array languages. They're like, well, you know, even some people in the community, like there's uh, disagreement about what the disagreement is. Um, but so there's a, an APL wiki page that talks about array models and like the top three are the flat nested and based. This trenchant more theory that you've referred to a couple times, does that correspond to one of those three things? It's the nested one. The nested one? Okay. Yeah, that, that's nested. All right. So it's um, nested. It's also called floating because of this property that, that scalars float over, like above encloses, through encloses, or however you want to describe it. Um, and Jim Brown is the other uh, big name associated with that. Right. And then when Bob Smith implemented NARS for SCSC, he followed that model strand notation strand assignment but that's not actually connected it's funny people keep people conflate the two no no i i realize that but he did follow that aspect of the thinking which can vehemently objected to which is why asked why ip sharp never had strand notation yeah but they are orthogonal to each other right? you could have strands and and not uh have floating arrays or the other way around it just happens to be that ken was against it <laughs> I think it is correct to say that the that this uh, grounded model does um, does make it less natural to have strands on um, on general arrays as opposed to because you have um, three kinds of arrays you have arrays of numbers arrays of characters and arrays of boxes so if you don't write anything to make a box it's not natural to make an array of boxes anyway so what you have is the the two kinds well you don't have character stranding because you can just write a string. But then you have numeric stranding, so you can write an array of numbers. And then an array of boxes, it really doesn't make sense. I mean, maybe you could say, like, if you put one box next to another box next to another box, then it'll merge into, into an array. But that's just really weird, because then you have to write the boxes out explicitly. So why don't you just write the array out explicitly? Well, you have this in today, and while we don't have sharp APL available, but J behaves the same way. Right? And it's, it, it's interesting, when you write one space, two space, three, if you were to say that this would do a stranding type thing, then you would expect to get an array of boxes, as you say. Right? No, no, because array of arrays of numbers are are one of the native types that the language has. Right. Uh, yes. So it's um, not a strand. So it's... you write out numbers in sequence, and you get an array of numbers. So that's that's how you write an array of numbers. But that doesn't carry over automatically to arrays of boxes. But it's degenerate that if you write one, two, three, you can think of that as being three arrays, each of which is enclosed of scalars, which degenerate to the scalars. So you're using this syntax, this strand syntax, to create a vector. So the Axiom system supports, it's, it's a way to describe what always happened in APL if you want to go down that road. But Ken found it very objectionable. Only they, only APL2, and, right, exactly. Only APL2 or, or uh, Trenton Moore system can describe what always happened. And I, I prefer to call what always happens stranding, even though that term wasn't used and people generally don't look at it like that. But for me, one space, two space, three is stranding just as much as quote ABC quote space quote DEF quote. 
So. And neither is a strand to me. I remember years ago, Bob Bernanke wrote a paper that was originally titled Stranded in Bethesda, but he dropped the in Bethesda part <laughs> and it was a treatise on strand notation or not. <laughs> I got to go find that. I assume that's online somewhere, right? I'm sure it is. It's an APL conference, so ACM should have it. Well, and so to me, my interpretation of that is that really these do both extend stranding, but they, so logically they, or, or mathematically, you might say they extend stranding it, that, that they're both systems where you can restrict them and get the stranding behavior you got, you got in uh, the original APL. But what happens is that different people thought about that original stranding system differently. So they see one system and they say that accords with the way that I thought about stranding. This is an extension and the other is not. Um, so it's, uh, it's more a factor of how you envisioned APL 360, the original model, as opposed to, uh, you know, which one is correct or not. Is it, is it how you envision the original model or how you can choose to explain the workings of the original model? Because when the original model was proposed, I don't think anyone was thinking about any of this. You were just entering a vector, whether it was a vector of numbers or a vector of characters or whether those numbers happen to be Boolean or floating point, irrelevant. Um, I don't know. I think it, it probably some people did uh, think, all right, well, it lets me type in, in a vector of numbers. And um, well, I can't write a, write a list of numbers and characters, but I'm sure that's just a system restriction. And it's not um, like really the ideal APL would let me put anything in there. Um, that's definitely what Jim Brown thought and wrote about. Um, and it, it's just technical restrictions, you know, amount of memory and making everything homogeneous that prevent me from do that, doing that. And other people say the natural view of an array is that it is homogeneous. So this is, it would be nonsense to write numbers and characters stranded together. Marshall, you, you're speaking from a purely theoretical perspective here. You never actually used an APL that did not allow putting together numbers and characters like this, right? Jay. Well, no, that, because you can have boxes. So you can put them together in an array. Whereas in, in original APL, there's just no way a single variable name could not contain a value that had both characters and numbers in it. Completely impossible. Couldn't happen. No go. So Jay extends the mindset of saying it is. it does not make sense to have an array containing both numbers and characters. It extends that by adding these boxes, which are a mechanism that allow you to put the numbers and characters in the same array. But but the array consists of boxes. So, I mean, I think I think that is the same mindset that I'm describing. I don't think I would be able to describe it if I hadn't learned it from Jay. Okay, but I, what I wanted to 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 get at when you're saying it, it was just a restriction in the system. Once it became possible, especially with a floating system and and uh, arrays with mixed type data, um, then it started happening where people were generating reports and 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 then they would have a single number up there in the corner of a. Um, of an otherwise character array, or you would have a numeric array that happened to have one character number in there. I'm sure this has happened to Steven. Um, and then things just start breaking right and left because the, the types are bad and you can't spot it. Um, so I'm, you could also see it as a feature. It's for sanity, you should not be allowed to, to mix the types because it will just get you into strange situations. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would say that heterogeneous arrays are so enclosed arrays are very handy, although in fact, some systems implement enclosed array as a homogeneous type of heterogeneous objects. But the idea that you probably still want to favor homogeneous arrays, I think is still valid because performance-wise, nothing will beat them. So for certainly for most of the applications I work on, I'm very, very careful when, about when I allow something to become 
heterogeneous. Yeah. If I'm going to mix the types, there's going to be a good reason for it. And probably we're not talking about something that has billions and billions of entries in it where we have to search on part of it. Yeah. And I think that is one of the really strong points even today of the of the um, flat array languages. J is the one that you'd encounter. Um, is that they do represent better how what's happening on the CPU or GPU? Um, <laughs> GPU definitely wants the same types. <laughs> well, <laughs> if J is the GPU, that would be nice. But without loss of generality, either. I mean, there's still a personal preference here, but obviously both systems work. Um, I mean, the one complaint I would have actually is that um, what Dialog does is to um, is to also it says. All numbers are floating point. Well, unless you, oh, well, all numbers are complex floating point unless you allow decimal floating point. Um, but then it's able to it it stores things in a smaller type. Um, whereas with J, actually, you choose, and with K as well, you choose um, floats or integers. Um, and I think the for performance, the dialog model is actually a lot better because. Um, it uh, it can choose the right integer width for you. Whereas with J, if you've got eight byte integers, then it's not really like, so an array of eight byte integers stored as say two byte integers would, would have to have different behavior from an array of floats stored as two byte integers. So, I mean, they could still do the same compressing the storage thing, but then it's actually harder to optimize because you have to remember, you know, are these integers really integers or are they really floats? where dialogue kind of unifies everything and makes that optimization easier. But all of that's an implementation detail. So it ought to be outside of the scope of anything that is not necessarily visible to the user, but... So in, in J, if you add integers enough, they will wrap around and go to 2 to the 63 minus 1 up to negative 2 to the 63. Um, and if, if you add floats, you know, they fl follow floating point semantics. In um, dialogue, you don't have that. All the numbers follow floating point semantics always. So that's the detail you can see from the language. And I think this view where um, where arrays are always homogeneous kind of leads to that idea of, well, we'll expose to the user, they can have arrays of integers or floats. Um, it doesn't require it, but it makes that a more natural choice to make. Whereas pretty much all the nested APLs just said, well, numbers are floats, period, and we're done. Well, but they're not sure quite look at it that way. I mean, in Sharp APL, for example, the internal representation of a value was limited. I mean, we had one bit Booleans, we had four byte integers, and we had eight byte floating point values. But if you typed one, two, three, you would get an integer. And if you type one, two, three point, you'd get a floating point value. But if you took that three and you added an appropriately high number such that it would become floating point or you'd lose precision, it would get promoted to floating point. Yeah. So my point is that even though the language didn't provide you an explicit way to say, I want this to be integer, there was a rule obviously, and there was implicit type promotion so that you didn't overflow inadvertently. What you might end up doing, however, is taking possibly a large integer table and having it be promoted to floating point when you didn't intend it to be. And that could be disastrous for the operation of a system. But anyhow, that's the way it goes. I mean, it's one or the other. You're either going to lose precision or you're going to get behavior that you may or may not have expected. Yeah. So in, in that way, Sharp APL is a lot more like other APLs and not like J. Dialogue. Um, I didn't know how it worked. Yeah. In the case of J and K, they have similar characteristics in the sense that once the data type is chosen, at least in K4, 
let's say you choose something that's a, a four byte integer. If you add enough values to it, then you'll wrap, but you'll stay four bytes. On the other hand, a two byte integer gets promoted to four bytes. Yeah. And there are times when a four byte integer will get promoted to eight, depending on the operation. Huh. All right. So what I've learned from this is one, implementation details should not affect categorization of array languages and Iversonian languages. And through all of this, I've been thinking, you know, if we had just evolved to not have alphabets and we just imagine like a Chinese language system where you've got like 40,000 words and really you don't need that many. It's just, we're creative people. We could, we could do it in probably like 6,000 and every word was just a number. We could just have, you know, you'd talk 42, 637, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's the way we communicate and we could get rid of character arrays, just have numbers only. Um, I'm sure there's some science fiction book out there where the language system is just numerics. Um, and uh, we could simplify our simplified all this because it seems like a lot of this just comes from, you know, characters and strings. It's a good thing the set of integers isn't infinite. <laughs> <laughs> all right, is there other anything else? I mean, I'm sure you. I'm sure we could continue chatting for. I'm sure if we move this conversation to a pub and uh, and you know kept asking for IP sharp story. I mean, we haven't even really talked about um, you know KX and and, and Q and. Um, Sort of what you've been working on now. I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if you want to sort of end with a, a, a final story or or snippet, or we should just have you back for part two, and then you can continue t- telling us everything. And up to you. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure which way to go. I'm happy to come back, by the way, if you'd like me to. But um, uh, what kind of a story might you be thinking of with respect to to Q? I mean, I don't know. I feel like you know Q. Um, APL versus Q. I'm sure you've got a bunch of Ken Iverson. I'm sure you've got, you know, some Arthur Whitney, Larry Breed, even there's, and that's the thing is like Ken Iverson, Arthur Whitney, are the names that come up most commonly, but like, um, weren't like a collection of the folks that are in that famous photo. Um, Larry Breed, Phil, Phil Abrams, uh, Dick Lathwell. Yeah. Dick Lathwell. Um, like and a bunch of them won different awards for their work on, uh, I can't remember if it was the Grace Hopper Award that a bunch of them won. That's right. But yeah, like, I'm, I'm sure there's just stories for days and like, you know, the the zoo, zoo stories or there's too many topics. That's, that's the problem is. Uh... <laughs> the APL versus Q thing is interesting because those languages are actually pretty different. Not only are the primitives different and not only is the representation of higher dimensional arrays different, but also the admission of data type, for example, is very, very prevalent in Q, but absent from APL. So there is no way in sharp APL in particular, there's no primitive that will give you the data type of something. There are ways to figure it out. You can work it out, but there is no primitive that says, what's the type of this object? And in fact, when packages were created, it was necessary because those were outside the scope of the language. They, they were implemented using names that began with quad. So part of the environment, not the language. When packages were implemented, it was necessary to modify algorithms that attempted to impute the data type of a value to include a special case for a package, which would have caused the APL expression that you could use to deduce type to fail. So type is really important in K, in Q, and not so evident, even if it is important to the implementer of a system in APL. But in addition to that, APL's attitude toward the rigor of primitives, I think, is a little different from from K's. There was an attempt to handle a lot more special and degenerative cases in APL. And I think 
to a large extent, Arthur's attitude with some of these things was, well, first of all, it costs to do this. If we add the check, that's going to slow things down. And the number one objective with K is performance. Feature functionality is definitely high up there, but performance is absolutely critical. With APL, performance was second to feature functionality and theoretical consistency. So there are places where Arthur declined to put a check in for something and, uh, and to handle a degenerative case. And as a result, you might get an error or you might get the answer you don't expect. Whereas APL generally didn't do that. As objects got smaller or bigger, the boundary conditions that came up were very predictable. And you rarely had a surprise at the edge between something going from length one to length zero, for example, regardless of the data type. That's a really like succinct description of those two. Like it crystallizes something that I've always thought about is that, I mean, even, even on Marshall's uh, BQN docs, it, at one point, I think it's in one of the motivation pages, it says that, you know, uh, performance is not something that, you know, most developers are going to be using this language for, um, which and sort of what you just said is that APL, it was number one was function, uh, feature functionality. Number two was perf. Whereas Q and K it's number one is performance. Number two is, uh, feature functionality, which I think is. No, number two is still perf. <laughs> no, number two is still perf. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe number three. Okay. Number four is yeah. feature functionality. <laughs> I think that's great though, that like, it's a, it's a great description. And it's, it's also too, like, that's one of the things I really like about Q is that, um, it shows you the B after a Boolean vector and it's like, I prefer personally typed languages and like a language like Haskell, it's very irritating anytime. Like I'm, I've become so used to uh, creating a list, uh, like a Boolean list, aka of ones and zeros, and then just summing that list to get the count of something. But to do that in Haskell, that's not the idiomatic way you'd do that at all, or any typed functional language for that matter, because you have to convert from the Boolean into an integer with some you know, ugly function in Haskell, it's called from enum. So you're going to map, you know, map your predicate function, get a list of Booleans, then map your enum or compose those two things and then do a summation, which is just like, that's just not the way you would do it. You're going to use some function that takes a predicate and then internally does that counting. So like there's a plethora of functions, but like it's so natural to do that in array languages. So what I, what I really want is like a, a typed language you know, obviously you could just use APL, but like in the sort of typed typed world that our languages are using elsewhere is like a language that you can use integers for Booleans, but they have some way to like delineate between the two. So you can have a function that you know always returns a Boolean or a list of Booleans, which is still just going to be integers at the end of the day. But anyways, it's just, uh, I feel like I'm not sure how much, like you said, type checking K and Q do around that, but um, it's just nice to get back like that visual confirmation when you're in the REPL and you do something and you get, you know, one, zero, one, zero, one, one, one. Um, whereas that, that from what I know, doesn't exist in any of the other array languages. But just to point out the representation on output of an array is independent of anything else we've really been talking about. So it would have been possible in K4 not to have an identification of type with a suffix of I, J, B, F and so forth, but just to have had you allowed you to use the type primitive, the type keyword in in Q in order to define the type. Mm -hmm. So they're really independent of each other in a way. As long as there is an internal representation of the type, it's possible for the thing that's in control of output representation to include that as a hint, but it's not necessary. Right. That's that's a good point. And I think 
if I'm not mistaken, J also has like data type, which is the the similar thing. Stephen, you're going to say something. But you you got a difference in philosophy there. I think as a user of APL, as a, um, I think I'm encouraged not to have to think very much about type promotion. It's like you don't want to think about that. We're going to handle that for you. Uh, as a user of Q with the emphasis on performance and extreme control over it, it's really encouraging. Yeah, you want to think about type here. Well, actually interesting uh, that there used to be a type primitive in APL, um, but again, doesn't care about internal type, um, but rather, is it numeric? Is it character or whatever? Other weird, weird Are you stuff. talking about something like Copeland code equals one take zero row? No. The no, the the NAR specification has a uh, has an actual primitive um, that replaces all characters with spaces and all numbers with zeros, um, and that's literally called type or type off. Um, but again, doesn't care about internal representation at all. It still it exists still in in Dalek APL, but only available by uh, changing that quadML the migration level. Although you can you can get the same effect because of the of the nested array system um preserving uh the internal types well preserving the types that build up an array so you cannot have an actual empty array you can only have an array one element that has length zero so there is always an, an an element that keeps the type and so if you enclose the array reshape it to length zero and then take the first element right so then that coerces out an, a prototypical uh, array of the same structure. And you can use that then to find out what the types are. With that, <laughs> wow, this has been, yeah, this is one of the episodes where I've got too many questions to ask. And uh, I mean, I think uh, we'll probably at some point in the future, I mean, if there's ever an ArrayCon, we're going to have to somehow try and twist your arm and uh, get you to come and speak, speak at uh, the conference. Um, or better still, we can do that pub thing that you talked about earlier. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably. I mean, it's less. Uh, it's less uh, great for the listeners. I mean, um, I, I. This is the last final anecdote, but this podcast that I've just I've been just absolutely loving called Oxide and Friends, and it's. Uh, I've mentioned it before, so I won't explain it. But it's a group of guys used to work at Sound Microsystems, anyways. But they basically just record meetings that they have now. I think they happen on Mondays, and like they used to host them on Twitter Spaces, and now they do it on Discord. And I just. I wonder how many of these like conversations of like veterans of the industry that just have so much, you know, wisdom and experience to share. And uh, like, I wish more companies would start doing this where they have their like, and that's the thing is it's not even like they're not talking about proprietary, like they're talking about the inner workings of their work and they're building these servers and stuff. And I just, it would be so great. I think if more companies where these kinds of conversations, people record them and just put them out in the wild. That being said, yes, I'm, I'm sure the conversation that can happen at the pub uh, would be even better. Although there there are podcasts that happen at pubs. There's one called Java Pub House where they, uh, I mean, I think it's mostly remote and they just have their beers at their desk now. But back when they started, they would all get together at a Chicago pub and you'd literally hear like the pub noise in the background and the audio quality wasn't great. But some of the stuff that they would stay after a, a pint or two, it is, it's fantastic. You know, uh, uh, you're getting like, you're like, wow, how would I have ever learned that? And uh, maybe we should, uh, yeah, maybe we'll think about a Raycast pub edition at some point. <laughs> if we're ever all in the same, uh, in the same city, probably having a beer at uh, like 11 a.m. on a Tuesday 
uh, it's probably not <laughs> not the not the decision we're going to be making for this going forward. But um, it, it's 11 a.m. for you. It's 8 a.m. for me. Uh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> but it's it's 6 p.m. for some people. So. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the quote? It's 5 p.m. somewhere. Um, yeah. Connor, you know that that uh, before the pandemic, for years, British APL associations uh, meetings were at a pub in London. Yeah. I mean, so that's that's the thing. Is it's it's like uh, there's pros and cons, right? Like. Probably my, like this, probably maybe this podcast would exist, but like a huge part of like the path to this podcast even existing was the pandemic. And like, I started going down the APL rabbit hole in December of 2019, which has just happened to fortuitously be two months or three months before the world shut down. And then everything, including the British APL seminar and all these things, like all these events that I no longer, I, I didn't have access to previously were being held online and didn't matter if they were in Europe or in Texas or wherever I could tune in. And so on one hand, I, I really do miss like the in-person meeting up um, with folks. But on the other hand, it's like, would, would this conversation be happening right now with Stephen and Bob? Like we, we are all, none of us are located in the same location. And like to this day, I've only met uh, Bob, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, no, I know I met you. I'm just, I think, I don't think you met anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, and that's, uh, and, the only, and the only reason I met Bob was because, uh, like, last year, I just happened to be on Vancouver Island, and I was like, wait, doesn't Bob, because, like, that's the thing, is, like, I don't even, off the top of my head, know where every single person lives. I just, like, have a general idea of the parts of the world that, like, I know Adam's, you know, over in Europe, not in America. I'd say Denmark, if I want to say, Stephen, I want to say is... London. UK, if I've got to be more specific, London. Um, and I know he's got hens in the backyard, but that's because I can see the hens. But that doesn't give away his geographic location. And Marshall, honestly, I know, I'm going to guess, like, North... Carolina, North, uh, North, it's got a North or a South in it, maybe. I know it's the US, <laughs> United States. You're right. You're a little hesitant, but yeah, North Carolina. Yeah. So, uh, but that's the thing is like, I, I like, I meet with these people once every two weeks and like, I am like roughly aware of where they live in the world um, and have only yet met one of them because we, I just happened to be in his neck of the woods and was like, wait a second. Yeah. Doesn't Bob, Bob, Bob lives near here, doesn't he? Which is just, anyways, my point being is that, uh, yes, pub stuff is, or meeting up in person is great, but also, uh, I think this like collection of people may or may not have happened had it not been for things becoming more remote and accessible. Um, so yeah, pros and cons. But we're in the same we're in the same city, Leslie. So <laughs> yeah, we can get together, and <laughs> we should actually. You know, you mentioned earlier um, that it's a shame that we don't have more recordings of people like Roger Moore, Ken Iverson, Larry Breed giving talks at conferences. Not so much Roger because he didn't speak that often, but certainly uh, people like Dick Lathwell, Phil Abrams, Eric, Ken, and um, and Larry did speak a lot. And it's a real shame that we just don't have any of that on film. Yeah. If the technology had been there, of course we would have. We'd take it for granted that the whole session would be recorded now. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's what I was t- talking to Stephen the other day is uh, about conference planning and stuff, and I was like, the number one. I think the number one important thing for conferences, and I, I realize it costs money to hire people to do the um, the recording and the audio and stuff, unless if you're going to do it on Zoom and, and just record it that way. But um, it's like putting stuff online, like the in-person meeting of 200, 1,000 people is great. But like if you have some talks that people really want to see, it'll, you know, the conference that I helped organize last year. Um, there was a talk by someone from Google and it, you know, there was, I think 200 people at the conference roughly, and then a hundred thousand people watched it online. Um, so it's like, uh, 
yeah, it's the the number of people you can reach when you're able to record that stuff is just, I think, yeah, um, immeasurable. <laughs> Except it is measurable by the number of views on the YouTube video, but <laughs> Im, 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 immeasurable because it's immense, not because it's not measurable. <laughs> Uncountable, right? Yeah, it's countable. But I, I said that, that and I was funny. like, "Wait a second. I, I just literally said the number and then proceeded to say that we wouldn't know what the number was. Uh, oh wait, can I tell you? Can I tell you a story? Then speaking of what you what you just said, that reminds me of the stupidest thing that I've ever implemented. Was you know this is party trick where you say to somebody, I'm going to tell you what your birthday is. And you do this by saying to the person, don't tell me anything, but take your month of birth and then perform some relatively straightforward mathematical transformation. On it, and then do something with the day of birth and then do something with the year of birth and then have the individual tell you that final number. And then you tell them, hmm, your birthday was uh, January 12th, uh, 1895 or whatever. So I decided, hey, this, this is a cool thing to implement in ABL. So I wrote this function and it wasn't until I got to the very last line that I realized how absurd this whole thing is because the function begins by saying, pretending it's talking to somebody and enter your year of birth, enter your month of birth, enter your day of birth. And then it goes through a whole bunch of calculations. And then when I started writing the line that says your birthday is, I realized <laughs> there was an easier way. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Not a good use of computers. <laughs> There's no way to write a unit test if you don't actually also ask for their birthday, though. So you're, yeah. it's, a, it's a catch-22. Um, yeah, at least it got the answer right all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Leslie, and um, answering all our questions and, and sharing your stories. Uh, yeah, I, this is going to be up there with uh, our top episodes, I think, especially... Um, Especially, yeah, uh, I don't, you're the first person that we've had on where the police or law enforcement, law enforcement of some kind showed up at uh, the doorstep. Uh, and they were uh, willing to tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, that's sad. Uh, that's true. That's true. Well, this is why we need to keep on having great guests on because now that the precedence has been set, future uh, guests will know that if they've, they do have some, you know, encounter with the law that uh, we love to hear those kinds of stories. I think you should um, make an arrest record a prerequisite going forward. <laughs> and if it comes back clean we'll say yeah this is not the kind of person we're looking yeah. for <laughs> and if it's too recent we know you only committed those crimes to get on the array cast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which actually came back to one of the descriptions of what an array language is is that if it's mentioned on this podcast it's an array language so that kind of opened things up wait we mentioned fortran uh-oh I mean, Fortran is in my diagram. I think it, it, Fortran's it, quite array-like these days. Yeah. It's got uh, array operators. I mean, it's they're not as ergonomic as APL, that's for sure. But they do have like two-dimensional arrays. Yeah, yeah. But primitives don't operate on them, except in scalar fashion. But I think you have to include the fact that functions and operators work on these numbered lists or character lists in order to have that be a yeah. defining characteristic of an array language. If I recall from my brief dabblings in fortran was that they had two different functions for they had like a max um max reduction for rank one arrays and then another max function for just like two scalars i, I can't remember something like that like so they had similar to other languages where they have basically just named their functions differently like uh in haskell maximum is for a list and max is for two numbers which coming from array languages obviously is somewhat upsetting because it's very very nice to just have one function for that. Uh, and uh, <laughs> anyways, that's a whole other whole other thing. Well, we'll we'll cut it there. Thank you so much, Leslie. This has been amazing, and um, pleasure. I'll throw it to Bob to 
say contact us at contact at arraycast.com and uh once again just to mention from our opening it was very gratifying to get that uh that letter from daniel thank you again for that really appreciate it as connor said it made his week it made my week as well so thank you for that and uh contact at arraycast.com and we are always looking for input and uh ideas for guests and topics and um we may or may not act on them because we are independent, as you probably gathered from listening to this podcast. But, uh, but we do take them seriously and do look into them. And we do have a number on the, on the burner right now that we're hoping will come up and, uh, and we'll be able to deliver on what people have suggested. Our, sp- our big sponsorships are right around the corner, and then we'll, we'll be completely just a, a mouthpiece for whatever millions of dollars that we're paid to, to do this podcast. Um. <laughs> Anyways, uh, with that, we'll say happy rate programming. Happy Happy rate programming. programming.